The following audio comes from the National Disciple Making Forum by Discipleship.org. The theme was relationships, and the Bonhoeffer Project, led by Bill Hull, hosted a track called Going Upstream in Disciple Making. Bill Hull and his co-author, Ben Sobels, have written a book called The Discipleship Gospel. Since it's a discipleship.org resource, we've made available for free the primer for this book. The premise of the book is that many people try to make disciples without first making sure that people believe the right gospel, one that leads to discipleship. It's called Upstream Theology, according to the authors. This is the discipleship gospel, which is really the gospel that Jesus preached. In their book, they clearly lay out the gospel that Jesus preached according to scripture and how you can teach this gospel that leads to discipleship. Download the primer for this book at discipleship.org gospel. That's discipleship.org gospel for your free primer. Now here's today's track session from the Bonhoeffer Project. To be with you. Uh, I do come from Long Beach, California. I'm a pastor, and uh, I've been trying, I've been wrestling through for the last seven or eight years, really since I met Bill, with what it takes to see a disciple making movement. Because I realized that running a religious organization or trying to have a, um, a cool show on the weekends was going to burn my soul out. And I kind of got the formula you bring in a sexy hipster worship pastor, uh, you teach a certain type of message, and you can grow your church, but. Um, I knew that was also going to come at the expense of uh, me burning out of ministry pretty, pretty quickly. So uh, I'm excited to be with you, and I'm excited to all, I'll be with people who are really asking the question, how does discipleship happen? How does transformation happen? What I want to talk to you about is reclaiming biblical language. Yay. <laughs> Doesn't that just sound thrilling and exciting? If you're a nerd, maybe it sounds exciting. Maybe some of you just died inside. I'm going to go for the thrilling angle because I think this conversation actually becomes really exciting. It will play out downstream in important ways. I'm more of a how guy. I want to know how something works. Uh, but to get to the how, you have to start with, you have to start upstream. You've got to start with the why before you can go downstream. And so I want to talk to you about reclaiming biblical language because of the fact that biblical language has been so deflated, devalued, and watered down in our day. But oftentimes we throw these phrases around and we sort of understand what we mean, but we might mean something completely different than the original intent of the words. Are you with me? Language is like that. And so um, we're starting with this idea of, that I've written on the board of salvation by grace alone. Now this is biblical language, right? It's also uh, Reformation language. This is what the Reformation was about, was, was rescuing the gospel from the grip of works uh, that had corroded the Catholic Church. So I want to say at the outset, I fully believe this. I believe in salvation by grace alone. So I'm just hedging my bets against heresy here. I want you to know that I actually and fully believe this. Uh, and there are problems with this phrase and what it has come to mean. That in effect, oftentimes this phrase salvation... Uh, by grace alone, in practical effect, has come to mean that salvation has very little to do with our, or little impact on our effort or our behavior, that that really has nothing to do with salvation. The discipleship, in fact, has very little to do with salvation. And the problem really lies right here with the word uh, salvation, what we mean by that, and by the word grace. 
will give by and alone a pass for the moment. So uh, these, are, these are the culprits in this theological statement. Because oftentimes what we mean by the word uh, salvation or what that has come to mean in the gospel Americana, the American gospel, is uh, that salvation means you believe in Jesus. So when you go to heaven, when you die, you're going to go to heaven. Yes. And that's wonderful news. And that is certainly part of the message of eternal life. But as we say in the Bonhoeffer Project, what enables that reductionist line of thinking, that that's the fullness of salvation, is what has happened in the American church with the word salvation, that the Western church, starting with the American church, took this idea of salvation and cut it in half between conversion and discipleship. So the idea is, in the American church, or at least for the last few decades, century, is that you can be converted without ever having to follow Jesus. We love the idea of Jesus as Savior. We'll leave on the table the idea of him as Lord. Now, perhaps this is not said explicitly or outright, but this is the practical effect. That you can be a Christian, you can be converted without having, actually having to follow Jesus or be his disciple. Well, this is a problem because what did Jesus say? Did Jesus ever make this distinction between conversion and discipleship? No, it's not a biblical distinction, right? He said, follow me. And in fact, the way that Jesus talks about eternal life or talks about salvation, in fact, when he, de he defines it in John 17, 3, he says, this is eternal life that you would know God and Jesus Christ who you sent. And that, that, that word know is an experiential knowing. It's an encounter sort of knowing. In fact, it's the same word that Mary uses in, in Luke 1, when she says, how can it be that I'm pregnant? I've never known a man. Same Greek word. So it's this notion of a relationship, not just a transaction by which we can know that we're going to heaven. It's a relationship. It's a transforming relationship. So even though, like in Bonhoeffer Project, obviously we believe in salvation, we also are critical of what this word has come to mean with the goal of we've got to reclaim the fullness of this word. We've got, to, we've got to reclaim the fullness of the Christian life if we want to see movements of disciple-making take place that change the word, world. And, and the second word we have to look at is this word grace, which has been covered so beautifully in the first session. If you're here in the first session, there's going to be some overlap between what Ben shared uh, and what I shared. Oftentimes, what we mean practically speaking by the word grace is, well, grace is this power released by God to cover and forgive our sins. And is that true? Yes, and as Ben said so uh, succinctly and beautifully, grace is also a power that fills our life to transform us and empower us to live in the good deeds that Jesus has prepared for us to do. So, you know, it's like the word, uh, words can come to mean different things. If I ask, if my wife is making a, a beautiful turkey sandwich and she asks for bread, I can bring her a croissant. I can bring her sourdough, I can bring her a roll, right? Language can lose its precision. And the word grace, in many ways, has lost its precision, or the precision that it had in the early church. That's what we're about, is wanting to reclaim these words. You know, like he said that, that, that uh, Peter talks about the grace that strengthens us. Or Paul even talks about how grace was given him to be an apostle, right? So there's this broad understanding of grace beyond just the grace to forgive sins. So, as Bill said, we're writing this book uh, with, the, with the title... Salvation by discipleship alone. We'll see if the editors will actually allow that to be a title. 
because you know it can cause some consternation in people. What on earth do we do we mean by that? Well, what we're trying to return to is this 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 reality that Jesus never separated conversion and discipleship and salvation is this relationship in which we follow Jesus. That so you can't actually separate conversion and discipleship. Salvation then, when we talk about salvation, we're talking about a comprehensive relationship that includes the forgiveness of sins, but is far more than that. So if you can imagine, imagine that I, uh, I'm invited to a party and I take, uh, my wife and I get dolled up. We dress to the nines. We look smart, as the British would say. We go to this party and we go up to the door and uh, there's this moment where we're greeted at the door and we open the, the house, uh, the door to the house. We cross over the threshold. It's a beautiful moment. There's, we, we realize the celebration, the banquet that's waiting us. And we start to move through the party. And we move deeper and deeper, room through room. We finally, uh, we're with our host in the back and we're banqueting and we're celebrating. And I would suggest to you that that's the picture of salvation as Jesus uses it. In fact, he even compares the kingdom of God to a banquet, right? Now, the moment that I cross the threshold into the party, that's a beautiful moment, right? But would anybody say that's the point of the party? No, it's just a, it's a beautiful moment, not the point of the party. The point of the party is actually to move into the party, to be with my host, to be with the guests, to celebrate, to feast, to do all the things that you do at a party. And what the American church has often done, if you, if you follow this metaphor out, is that that moment where you cross the threshold, a beautiful moment, has basically stopped there and said, this was the point of the party. Boom. Take this moment of, of salvation, of justification, and said, that's it, all right. And miss that this was actually just an entrance point to the greater party that was to come. So we have to recover for our people. For, if we're disciple-making leaders, we have to recover and language for people the broad sense of what it means to be in the party and the banquet. And the forgiveness of sins is a huge part of the party, huge part of the gospel. But we have to fill out for people what does it mean to move into the party? What does it mean to, to, uh, to live on mission with God? What does it mean to partake in the things that God uh, cares about within the party life? So uh, this requires a reclaiming of biblical language. That's really what we mean by reclaiming biblical language is going back to the original intent. Going back to how Jesus used these words or Peter or Paul, the early Christians. That's why what uh, to recap session one or three, the first session this morning with Ben was saying is that the gospel, when we use the word gospel, we're not just talking about uh, justification. We're talking about the whole party. We're talking about that threshold moment and the whole party. And that the gospel is, is not primarily about our justification, as wonderful that is. It's about the king and the kingdom. It's about Jesus and the new reality he brings on the earth. So we've got to reclaim this language. And if we do that, then we can, create, we can, we can imagine a beautiful uh, future for the church. Because, my friends, the church as we know it is dying. In Long Beach, where I live, you can see the death more quickly. Nashville, you guys are doing, doing, doing better, right? But everywhere, the form and the function of church as we know it, if you read the reports, if you read the stats and all that, is going away. But something is going to be reborn and resurrected in its place, right? So the question is, what is that going to be? We know the church is not going anywhere, but is what is resurrected, will it be this dynamic expression of discipleship? I would say that's the only thing that can happen if there's hope for the church. It's people understanding the full message of salvation by discipleship, by following Jesus. So um, here's some of the words we want to reclaim. Salvation. We said the word grace. What about the word discipleship? What is, it, what is a disciple? 
Well, if the gospel is the story of Jesus as the king and he brings a kingdom, then a disciple is someone who allegiantly and loyally follows the king. A disciple is someone with their whole life shows allegiance in following the king. When's the last time that you use that kind of language? When's the last time I use that kind of language to invite people into discipleship? But hey, discipleship is about giving your whole life in allegiance because there's a king and there is a kingdom. I want to throw up another word here and I want to spend some time uh, talking about how we might reclaim a, a word that is really at the heart of, Christ, of Christianity, which is the word faith. Because we know that faith, Scripture makes clear, is really how you access salvation. Faith is, part, is, is, is what enables you to enter this world of grace, the world of discipleship. And this is a great illustration of why there's such a potent need for us to reclaim biblical language. Because as Ben said in the first session, oftentimes when we use the word faith, what we really practically in effect have meant in the, in the, in the American church is mental assent is, um, or belief that God is good. And this is all that has been accessed, is this idea that, well, I have faith and I have belief and that's going to get me saved. So I want to I uh, tell you a couple of stories from, from history. The first is from the book of First Maccabees. I know you were all reading First Maccabees last night before you went to bed. It's a book written around 120 B.C. And uh, in this book, the author uses the word pistis, the Greek word for faith. And listen, to the, here's, the, here's the context of the story. After Alexander the Great's empire uh, fell apart, there was all these rival Greek generals who were all battling for the land of his empire. And there was one Greek general, Greek king, named Demetrius, and he had his eye set on Judea, on what would become Palestine. And he heard that this rival king, Alexander, was making inroads with the Jewish people. And Demetrius freaks out because, well, if Alexander makes an alliance with the Jews, then I'm done. And so he rushes uh, to send this letter to the Jews in Judea. And he writes this, King Demetrius, to the nation of the Jews, greetings. Since you have kept your agreement with us and have you continued your friendship with us and have not sided with our enemies, we have heard of it and rejoiced. So he's trying to curry favor. Don't follow this Alexander guy. Now, continue still to keep faith, to keep pistis with us, with me. And we will repay you with good for what you do for us. All right, so he's playing the political game. He's trying to get the Jews to be loyal to him. And then he uses this word, which is the same word we see in Scripture, the word pistis, the word that we usually translate faith and belief, to have faith or to believe. But here, as Demetrius uses the word pistis, what he's, what he's clearly not saying is, hey, just believe in me and have faith in me. I'm a good guy. What he's actually saying is be loyal to me. Show allegiance to me. Don't break faith with me. Continue on in loyalty, to me, loyalty and allegiance to me and to my cause. Keep the faith, not just have faith. Didn't turn out so well for Demetrius. Uh, the Jews didn't care for him. They actually sided with Alexander, and Demetrius ended up dying in battle. But at least we get this example of, uh, of biblical language, pistis. Now, the second story takes place nearly 200 years later. It's going to involve the same word, pistis, faith. Uh, in 66 AD, now the Romans are in charge, and there was a, a, a Roman general. He, he's a, actually a Jewish Roman general, a turncoat named uh, Josephus. You might have read some of his work. 
But Josephus becomes a Roman general, and he tells this story of having to deal with some rebels who uh, had, well, they'd rebelled against his cause. And so he goes to these rebels, and he says to them, now listen to this. He says to these rebels, repent and believe in me. Repent and have pistis, have faith in me. That is strikingly similar. That's probably familiar language to us, right? Repent and believe. In fact, that's the, language, the very language we read in the gospel, Mark 1.15, that Ben talked about this morning. Repent and believe. Have faith. But uh, what Josephus is clearly not meaning here is, hey, just believe in me, have faith in me that I'm a good guy and that I'm a good general. What he means clearly is, hey, turn from what you're doing and show allegiance once again to me. Be loyal. Indeed, in an action, realign with my cause and show allegiance. You see, these differences in language play out in major ways downstream. Uh, and Matthew Bates, who wrote the book Salvation uh, by Allegiance Alone, he makes this case that when the early Christians heard the word pistis, have faith, that what they didn't think was just God is good and he has the power to forgive your sins. They thought that and have allegiance, have loyalty to him. That the biblical language for faith in the first century was far, carried far more this connotation of I must respond to the king with loyalty and allegiance in everything that I do. We hear the word faith and we tend to think because of how the language has been reduced as well, believe that God is good and believe that he can forgive, forgive your sins, which is a huge part of it. That's like the threshold to the party. But the connotation we're often missing is that when the scripture talks about faith, it's also talking about the word allegiance. In fact, Bates makes the argument then that when you, when you read certain um, passages of scripture like Ephesians 2, 8, by grace you have been saved, he actually translates that, by grace you have been saved through allegiance. That's how strongly he thinks that we're missing out on this notion of pistis as embodied loyalty to God. So, um, those are two stories in which the best translation of pistis, again, is not just believe, but be allegiant, show faithfulness. I'll read from uh, Matthew Bates' thesis here. He says, the Greek word pistis, generally rendered faith or belief as it pertains to Christian salvation, quite simply has little correlation with faith or belief as these are generally understood and used in contemporary Christian culture and much to do with allegiance. So we're not throwing out the idea of, of, of faith and belief in God's goodness, but what would be added to our understanding of the gospel is that when we taught about faith, we taught this dynamic of allegiance, of loyalty, because that's what the early followers of Jesus understood. Part of the um, objection to this line of thought, and maybe some of you, are, is anybody feeling uneasy or uncomfortable right now? No? Okay. I'm not being provocative enough then. The objection potentially to this is, well, hold on, this sounds like works. We're we talking about works. And no, we're not talking about works at all for multiple of reasons. Number one, Scripture makes it clear that not only is grace a gift, but so is faith, right? Even somehow in this crazy way that is very humbling for us, even our ability to have faith is somehow a gift of God. That somehow he empowers even uh, our own allegiance. You don't have to be, a, a, this isn't even in a debate between a Calvinist and Arminius, Arminian. But that somehow there's a mystery that grace and the faith to believe in grace is a gift so that none of us can boast. Furthermore, in the first century context, 
part of the cultural context we're missing is it was just understood uh, that if you were given a gift, that a response was expected. There was a patron-client relationship that we obviously don't relate to now in contemporary culture. But, uh, for example, uh, if a Roman patron gave you a gift, you might the next morning go to his house and in front of the whole town play a song singing his praises. In the first century mindset, it was understood that, that receiving a gift, even if the gift was free, still demanded a response demanded loyalty, demanded allegiance. And this kind of thinking shows up in the, in the scripture. It's not works theology when Paul says you're going to be judged by your works. He actually says that. What he clearly doesn't mean is unless you do these things to earn your salvation, you're not going to be saved. What he means instead is if you have true allegiance to God, then you are going to have good deeds and works, right? So oftentimes when we read scripture, we sort of downplay those things that talk about responding with allegiance or We'll pretend that Paul didn't say that about our good deeds and our good works. When actually, if you understand the fullness of biblical language, it just fits right into place that Jesus is the king. I must loyally and faithfully follow the king. And it actually allows us to push back against what the gospel Americana, what the American gospel has done in reducing our understanding of the potency of discipleship and a life of abundance and freedom following Jesus. Because I think that's part, my friends, of why the church as we know it is dying. is because the gospel that we preach has actually stripped the power of the gospel from what we're proclaiming. And that's the possibility that stands before us, even in this conference. This, this, this is a Kairos moment, not just today, but the days that we're in. The possibility is for us to reclaim the potency of the message. But as Ben said, it will require courage because not everybody's going to be up for that. Some people just want the message of, okay, I'm good. I've prayed the prayer. And to actually proclaim the fullness of the gospel, guess what? Don't expect that everybody likes that or is up for that. So, you know, it also, allegiance, this idea of faith as allegiance, also it just makes common sense. You know, if I, you know, on my wedding day, or imagine somebody's getting married um, and they make their vows, right? I, I pledge to be faithful. But then the years go on and they become unfaithful and un, more unfaithful and they violate their vows of their marriage. Nobody would say, well, hey, at least they made the vow back in the day. Right? Everyone would say, well, they made the vow, but look at this. Because when you think of, of salvation as a relationship, as Jesus did, then you look at the whole piece of it. It's not enough that I stood before my wife and promised that I would be faithful. What matters, actually, that's important, but what matters is that I actually walk it out. And there's a reason that the New Testament metaphors are actually the relational metaphors. They're not transactional metaphors. Adoption, reconciliation, justification. Justification actually means there's a transactional part of it. Christ nailed our sins to the cross. But justification in the fullness of the word, tekaiosune, means to be brought into right relationship. So part of the reason that we have a tr of trouble understanding biblical language is because we've removed, we've thrown out these relational metaphors, like marriage, even though Paul says that, that marriage between a man and a woman is a picture of Christ in the church. Once you throw out that way of thinking and you just focus on conversion, well, now you've, you have reduced things down to a transactional metaphor alone. And transactional thinking cannot capture the fullness of the gospel as it was taught in the first century. 
And people now, we don't think about salvation so much as uh, we're less likely to meta make it a metaphor for, uh, or make marriage a metaphor for salvation. We're more, far more likely to make salvation, uh, you know, it's like getting a, a certificate, a ticket. Now you've got it. Don't lose it. And now if I have this ticket, I'm going to go to heaven when I die. So we have to reclaim biblical language. We have to reclaim biblical thinking. And... Um, Bottom line, we have to reclaim discipleship language. We've got to create a new rubric. We have to be dynamic in how we teach words like salvation, like discipleship, like faith. Because discipleship is allegiance, not allegiance. I can spare, spell pretty well before you put me in, until you put me in front of a whiteboard. So salvation, bottom line, salvation by discipleship alone it's about making discipleship normative as Jesus did. He simply said, follow me. And our thesis in the Bonhoeffer Project is that to see local movements of disciple making born that are going to, that are going to uh, remake the face of the church and therefore remake the face of the world, if we're going to see that happen, then we have to make discipleship normative and the idea that all who are called to salvation are called to discipleship, no excuses and no exceptions. And that means that uh, we're going to have to language the call to discipleship in really clear ways to restore the gospel in which discipleship is normative as it was in the first century. There's some work ahead for us to see that happen. Now, um, I want to close before we bring up our panel because um, I'm always thinking, okay, great. These are neat ideas. How does this play out downstream? So let's just think about, we've talked a little bit about the what the why is the gospel that demands discipleship. The what is reclaiming biblical language. Well, how does this play out in the life of a ministry or the life of a pastor or the life of a church um, to create disciple-making culture? How do we create disciple-making culture in which the call to discipleship is normative and normal? My friend J.R. Woodward always talks about, uh, in his book, uh, Creating a Missional Culture, he, sa he says, there's two ways you create culture. One is the language that you use, and the second is what you celebrate. The language you use and what we celebrate. That's why in this session I focused on, on language, on reclaiming, excuse me, on reclaiming biblical language. Because that's like the membrane that allows the, air, the, the oxygen of the culture to stay within the culture. If your language is flabby and it's not dynamic, then the oxygen in the culture will just slip out. But the other piece of this, what we celebrate, <clears throat> is revealed in our practices and what we actually do. So here are some ideas around language and practice. Uh, how would the idea of allegiance play out in what we do? Well, for example, uh, Matthew Bates talks about, uh, you know, when you're baptizing someone, oftentimes what we say is, all right, do you believe that Jesus Christ is the Lord of life, salvation, the forgiver of sins? Yes, I do. Okay, great. We baptize you in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Keep that question. It's a great question. Do you believe? Yes. But he said that they added in his church this second question. By stepping into the waters of baptism, do you declare your undying allegiance and loyalty to Jesus, to follow him all the days of your life, to make him the Lord of your life in all things? Now you hear what that adds to the conversation. It kind of, it, it, it's a gut check moment, right? Oh boy, that's what I'm getting into? That's what I'm committing to? Whew. Now think about what that does for the culture. What it communicates to his church is, this isn't primarily about you being baptized and going to heaven when you die. This is about Jesus the King and you being loyalty, loyal to him. 
that his heart, his plans and purposes would come forth on the earth. That's a culture changer. Language plays out in, in, in creating a culture in powerful ways. Just as a little side note on this, I, I go crazy when people say about our church, oh yeah, he attended here for many years or he attends our church. Ah, it's the worst. I hate that language. I don't even like the language, oh yeah, I go to this church. Why? Because what, what does it communicate? The language creates this reality of I'm here, I go over there, I guess I go over to a gathering or a service, and then I leave. So I tell people, hey, not to be a language Nazi, you can go crazy on this stuff, but think about how different it is to say, uh, rather than saying I go to this church, to say I'm a part of this community. You see, just that subtle change in language, it, it evokes two completely different realities, right? That's how language ends up creating culture downstream. So if we can work allegiance language into what we do, we actually did the same thing that Matthew Bates talked about in our, in our most recent baptism. Are you professing your allegiance and your loyalty to Jesus because he's the king and he has a kingdom? Let me tell you, that trues up everybody in the room. Oh, that's what we're about? That's a little more intense. Another part of allegiance that can play out downstream is that it's, it's normative to expect people to hear and respond and be obedient to what Jesus is speaking. And in many ways, what we're doing when we're teaching, when we're making disciples, we're teaching, teaching disciples, we're pursuing a disciple-making movement, it's pretty simple. What we're actually teaching people to do is hear the voice of the Spirit and respond. That's really it on some level. We can get more fancy and highfalutin, but really what we're trying to capacitate people to do is to realize I hear Jesus and I can respond to him. Like in our discipleship groups, the last question we ask at the end of every group, the first question we ask is, how's it going loving those that Jesus has given you to love? We don't just ask, how are you doing? How are you and Jesus doing? We ask, how's it going loving those that Jesus has given you to love? To, in order to communicate that this isn't just about you, this is about the movement of the kingdom of God as you live in love like Jesus. But the second question we ask, and it's the last question we ask at the end of each group is, so what do you think Jesus is speaking to you and how are you going to respond? And this is allegiance language because what we're saying is, Jesus is the king, you're called to be loyal and obedient to him. And he's the loving shepherd who he, he's guiding your soul. So what do you think that he's speaking to you and how are you going to respond? Now, no matter what your theology is, and I know people can get, I have all sorts of notions of uh, how the Spirit speaks or how we hear God, but I think all of, all of us have some sort of notion that God is actively working within us, right? And what my experience is, if you ask somebody, what do you think Jesus is speaking to you? Nine times out of 10, maybe 99 out of 100, they'll get pretty close. Not like a perfect word from the Lord, but people generally can put to words what they think Jesus is speaking to them. And if not, the group can say, oh, I'm not sure, that might be the Subway sandwich you had last night instead. <laughs> and then the question is, great. Okay, so you're, someone says, okay, well, I need to live a more unhurried life because I'm, I'm going too fast. Okay, great. What does that look like? How are you going to do that this week? Until they get really specific. Because you notice Jesus is really, Jesus is, love is always specific, right? Love is never a generalization. God always calls us to get specific. So we coach people to specificity. And then the coup de grace, we say, okay, are you going to do this, what you said, between now and our next session? Yes. I'm going to do it. And this is a way of practically speaking downstream, communicating. You don't even have to, not, without even saying, Jesus is the king, you must be a legion. It's a way of communicating in practical terms. This is what discipleship is about. Being loyal and faithful to the God who is transforming you and is calling you on mission in the world. 
And the specificity, specificity piece I neglected to say is, if someone says I need to be unhurried, trying to get it down to, okay, I'm going to be unhurried by waking up every morning and walking around my neighborhood and engaging in prayer. Boom. Specific. Great. Will you do it before our next session? Uh, another way of communicating allegiance, and I'll make this the last one, is the stories that we tell. Are we telling stories that demonstrate that people are being faithful and allegiant and loyal to Jesus in his mission in the world? Because part of what we're up against in the American church is this hierarchy in which, you know, it's like if I get up there and tell a story, people will listen to me because I'm a pastor. They also will not listen to me because I'm a pastor, right? So whatever I say, there's credibility and there's also a lack of credibility because I'm paid to say it. One of the things we started doing at our church is we just got people up there all the time telling stories about what allegiance is looking like in their life. What does it look like for you to, how are you expressing allegiance to Jesus? And it could be a story about all sorts of things. Serving in children's ministry, crossing the street to invite their neighbors out for dinner. But stories that, in, that reveal allegiance as faithfulness to Jesus' mission in the world. And not only stories of success, but stories of failure. So the point is, if we can reclaim this biblical language upstream, this why language, then it's going to play out downstream, not only in how we talk, but in what we do. So I want to ask you to take a moment and while the panel is coming up. <clears throat> how in your context, whatever ministry it is, whether it's in a church, whether uh, it's in your neighborhood, whether you're a pastor, whether you're not on a church staff, I want to ask you to take a moment to write down <clears throat> two things you could do in your context that would invite people into understanding that faith is also allegiance to God? What are two things that you could do that would communicate to people that when we're talking about salvation, we're also talking about an allegiant relationship? Now, I hope that question makes sense because I just made it up right now. So what I'm asking you to do make sense? Write down two things you could shift or change in your context that would invite people into understanding and to acting on faith as allegiance before God. And let me ask Bill and Denny. So the final thought, and just to, re to, to kind of capture and summarize what I'm saying, if we can recapture biblical language, the language of salvation and grace and faith, then we can make discipleship normative once again. So in a church culture, you walk in and it's understood. Discipleship is not some class that we go to. It's what we do, everything that we do is discipleship, and that all who are called to Jesus, that discipleship, that following Jesus is a normative expectation. If we can do that, then we're looking at a future where we will see local movements of disciple-making born that reshape the church and that ultimately reshape the world. That's the hope. So I'm going to ask... Amen. Thank you. So I'm going to ask Sandy and Denny and Bill to comment on this and maybe to comment on um, what they see in this and how this plays out practically downstream. I'm a pastor out in Phoenix, Arizona, planted a church there 16 years ago, uh, started it as a disciple-making movement, took my elders, pre-elders, and uh, met with uh, four of them Tuesday morning, four of them Wednesday, and four of them Thursday, and uh, began to pour in uh, a lot of Bill Hall's uh, thinking about what is a disciple, what's it mean to follow Jesus, what's a disciple-making church, and it was glorious and sweet. And then a couple of them left, and a couple moved away, and then we got a building. And then I got staff, 
and uh, all of a sudden I'm leading a religious institution. So I've discovered that this is a constant process of renewal. If you're a ministry pastor leader to go back and say, like Lombardi at spring training with the Packers, hey guys, this is a football. And so we have to go back and say, this is the gospel. And uh, so I just try to use a lot of practical pictures, Brandon. I, uh, one Sunday I came out with the football jersey and I said, you know, this team, anybody, Grace says anyone can qualify for this team. It's not about how fast you are, how strong. You can join this team and you get a jersey, you get a playbook and practice is Monday. And then I say, now how, how stupid would it be to get the jersey and the playbook and just say, no, I'll just show up in the stands every week. And is, that's no fun. And that's part of what you want to communicate for people. The reason the Christian life is boring is because you've got this anemic gospel that all Jesus cares about is getting you to heaven. And uh, he gave so much that you just, all his parables are about uh, looking for fruit and a life of fullness and adventure. So I try to just think of practical word pictures. A general saying, hey, you're in my army, you qualify, here's your sword, your shield, here's the map where the enemy's hiding out, and you go, great, I'll go home and watch TV. Well, give me all my stuff back. You know, I think you'd have every right to say that. Turn in your playbook. Turn in your playbook. Let me begin by saying that I, I was not raised in a Christian context at all, and once I began to follow Jesus, I realized the only area of my life that I'd ever been discipled was in baseball. Yeah. I was shown how to hold the bat, how to put my fingers across the seams of a baseball, how to lift my elbow as I threw the ball, how to bend down and put the glove in front of me when I was getting a grounder and so on. And then when I didn't do it right, I had a coach that showed me how to do it. And after a while, I got to teach the younger kids. I never had anybody, even when I began my journey with Jesus, I never had anybody for for many, many years, really disciple me. And when I became a pastor, uh, through the, the providence of God, we, we got connected to a church that was a United Methodist Church. Now, already some images have come up in your hard drive. But the reality was this, this church meant business. They impacted the community. And, and the pastor, at that point, I understood that he was preaching the full gospel. And uh, as a result of his impact upon my life, I went off to Bible college and then cemetery, uh, seminary, as we say, and I began to follow a calling to be a, to be a pastor. The third week of the last church I served, which was for 18 years, this woman came up to me that had great influence, and she had been raised in the church, sat on the organ bench of her mother all through the years of her growing up as she played the organ. And she came up to me in, in the office, and it's so vivid, brothers and sisters, that I could take you to the place on the floor where she stood. And she looked into my eyes, and we were friends because I came with three small girls and a precious wife, and uh, that kind of grease the wheel a little bit. But after three weeks of hearing me preach, she said, Denny, I know you believe what you preach, but what is this Jesus is Lord business? And I didn't drop my jaw or, or widen my eyes. I took a very deep breath and a quick prayer, Lord, help me. And I began a conversation with her. And the problem is that we have swallowed this gospel that has been uh, affected in our culture. And one time when I was telling a, a, 
a Hispanic pastor uh, about what it's like to be in the America, especially the Western culture, but here in America, I said it's like breathing in a toxic gas that desensitizes us to the power of the gospel and it also blinds us from what Jesus has called us to do in terms of following him as, as his disciple. And he, before he put the next bite of food in his mouth, he said, methyl bromide. I said, excuse me? He said, that's methyl bromide. And so I looked it up, and sure enough, methyl bromide is a soil sterilant. And so what, what this was produced, it's not produced anymore, but if you inhale, it's a colorless odorless, tasteless gas. You don't know you're breathing it in. And being in this culture, it, it does the same thing to us spiritually. The enemy of our soul has emitted this toxic gas from the pit of hell, and it's blinded us from who we are and desensitized us to the gospel. And this allegiance, I just love that word. In fact, I used it before Matthew did, and I thought, maybe I'm on the right track. But this, this is serious business, and we're, we're in a war we're in a spiritual war, as our brothers shared the very opening yeah. uh, session, and it won't be won by just our, our cleverness, only through what God can do through our prayer and fasting. And so uh, it's, a, it's a real situation, and, and uh, I could share more, but I'm going to turn over to Bill. That's, what, that's my question that's burning in my soul this morning. No, I, I think that the, the reason we are writing this book, Salvation by Discipleship Alone, is uh, just the, you know, obviously it's a play on the uh, salvation by grace alone or salvation by faith alone, it's an attention getter. Actually, it's to get people to relook at words and their meanings and the precision of words. So the, the, the introduction, which uh, I happened to write that part of it, uh, I just said, what do we mean by salvation? Uh, what do we mean by discipleship? And what do we mean by alone? And uh, Bonhoeffer, since he's our namesake, he said some really interesting things, and one of them is that only a person who has lived a life of dedication to Christ knows what it means by the phrase salvation by grace alone. Because his point is, if you spend a lifetime of serving Christ faithfully, you know it's only by God's grace that you've made it that long. And that's the meaning of it. And so essentially, when, uh, we, when I uh, wrote about the gospel Americana and about us being a nation of heretics, I know that, uh, I think it's Russ Dalbert, who is a New York Times columnist. He's one of the few that is actually conservative. And he's a very uh, devout Catholic and a very smart man. And he has a book called Bad Religion. came out about seven or eight years ago. And in this book, uh, he has one chapter that he talks about us being a nation of heretics. And the gospel Americana is an evidence of that. There's six or seven manifestations of it. And we go through each of one of those and just ask the question, what does this kind of gospel uh, reveal? So the, the forgiveness only gospel essentially creates passivity in people. Uh, Dallas Willard once said that we've not only been saved by grace, we've been paralyzed by it. And we've talked about that paralysis a bit here. Uh, the gospel of the left, the, uh, who have deconstructed the uh, 
the scriptures themselves and the, the old left, the, what we call classic liberalism. What it leads to is cultural accommodation by just wanting to accommodate ourselves to the culture in order to be accepted. And in our country, uh, we don't uh, have the same kind of outright persecution of Christians that they, not the same kind they have in other countries uh, that are more tyrannical, uh, but they, they fear the, the, the raised fist. But in our country, we fear the raised eyebrow. Um, and then there's the prosperity gospel, which is really what it creates is people who uh, demand that God obey them and produce the results that they're looking for. And that is a form of God management. Uh, the gospel of the right uh, has created just that uh, theological swagger. The, the idea that we're right and you just haven't thought it through. And a sense of arrogance and superiority. And, uh, you know, it's a heavy burden to carry in your life to always have to be right about everything. And so what we do in the book is we talk a little, we talk about these issues. What does it actually lead to, which gets back to what Brandon was talking about, is in the bottom line is, what kind of people are we? Uh, because it is all theory. Uh, without the idea of, aren't we actually living out this life? Are we loving the world as Christ loved it? Because that's really what Every time we leave a room, when we leave this room, are we loving others? Are we loving it the way Christ loved it? Let me also say, and then we'll take a few questions. <clears throat> Excuse me. This idea of looking at the gospel in our, in our Bonhoeffer cohorts, this is actually what we start with. We, go up, we call it going upstream to look at the biblical language, to get, really, to get it in our bones that the gospel makes discipleship normative, to get it in our bones that the gospel is, is, is about Jesus and the kingdom, and that the forgiveness of sins is a huge part of that. But the king in the kingdom is the biggest box in which everything fits. So there's a little sampling of what we, what we do. Actually, for the first three or four sessions, we really hone in on this because to be a disciple-making leader, you've got to have this in your bones. By the end of the process, we go all the way downstream, kind of like I did in, in, even in my talk today, just how does this play out? How do you create a disciple-making plan that will actually work in your context? So if you're interested in joining a cohort, we'd love to uh, journey with you. And... Um, our cohorts are beginning to launch really in the next few months and throughout the next year. Yes, this is the, the season where we're talking about 2019. Yeah. So are there any, uh, we'll just close with a few questions and let you go a few minutes early. Does anybody have a question or a thought they want to share? Your question is how do you overcome uh, someone's fear of allegiance and it sounding like lordship salvation or like works theology? You know, lordship salvation controversy was, came out with a book by uh, our brother John MacArthur back in the 19, was it the early 90s maybe? Yeah, yes. And essentially, I think the, that controversy, uh, he, you know, John stepped into an issue that was the classic forgiveness only gospel, the classic consumer gospel. It's all about me getting my sins forgiven, getting into heaven. And people just, uh, you know, the basic problem is you can, become, you can become a Christian and not follow Jesus. And he stepped into that and did it in his own way. You know, a way that is very dogmatic, uh, thorough, uh, forceful. And, uh, and so that what had, the, the reaction came out of Dallas Theological Seminary. 
with Zane Hodges and Charles Ryrie, who were uh, two uh, really fine men uh, who taught there. And they, they actually uh, were teaching a gospel that said, you don't even have to repent. Yeah, and so you really had on one you had two extremes in a way. Uh, the lordship salvation, I think, what it, what came out was this idea that you have to maintain a certain level of behavior, and that was, I think, the impression that people got is that you have to maintain this level of behavior, and if you fall below that certain line of behavior, then maybe you're not really saved. And so that was on one side, and then the other, of course, was the debate went back and forth. And the way that we, you know, we get asked this question, uh, initially I was asked this question when I was at Trinity Divinity School back in uh, the late 80s, and I remember uh, early 90s, whenever it was, and people were asking me this question. I remember there was 50 or 60 of the faculty member at their faculty retreat, and they asked me this question. Are disciples born or made? And uh, I drew a blank, actually. I had one of those moments where you go, oh, no, I've dreamt of this. I've had nightmares without, you know, running down the street without my clothes on and things like that. But this is really bad, you know, that I don't have an answer. And then the Holy Spirit gave me, you know, in Luke 12, I think it says that if you're taken before the Sanhedrin or authorities, that the Holy Spirit will give you words. And boom, it came to me. And uh, it was, I said, well, they're born to be made, which I think is the right answer. Um, so that's how I answer it. You know, we're born to be made. Um, we, and I think the issue is what is biblical faith? And I think James answers that question for us in, in the second chapter, uh, that a saving faith is essentially enough faith to get you following, uh, to start walking like Levi, you know, start walking, start following, start living it, start learning, start beginning. That's, that's what faith really means. Faith, as Bonhoeffer said, faith is only real in obedience. Uh, faith is not agreement. Faith is only real in obedience. If there's not obedience, it's not faith, and it doesn't save you. Period. Yeah, any more questions? Love. Oh, the meaning of love in the New Testament? Whew. Yeah, you take that one. Yeah. <laughs> the meaning of love. Well, you know, what comes to mind when you say that in relationship to this conversation is how can you love God who you don't see if you don't love your brother who you do see? And so I think we see, basically, I think it connects to your question, which is how do we teach people um, that faith is about believing and allegiance? And it's, a, it's about creating a both and in their mind rather than either or. People have been trained into either or thinking. And they're afraid of both ends. Uh, but really, reuniting conversion and discipleship <clears throat> is about creating a both end. Uh, we're saved by grace. We're, uh, we're empowered to live as a disciple by grace. So that's how, I mean, I would, and, I, and in your, to answer your question, I would point him to passages where it says, well, the only way to understand this passage when, Paul, when James or Paul talks about good deeds is that this is a part of allegiance. Uh, I think a similar thing happens with love is that we often think about, well, uh, love is this thing that we receive from God, and now we're going to heaven. But 
it's clear that love is also a power, the love of God, if you truly receive it, transforms you to be on mission in the world. So when John says that, when he says, how can you love God whom you don't see if you don't love your brother who you do see, what he's clearly saying is, okay, so real love is always going to express itself out as embodied as in some sort of embodied way in the world around you. And if it doesn't do that, then it's just conceptual and it's not worth anything, right? So the, the New Testament continually does this with any of these words is it grounds it in this idea of obedience. This is how you know if it's really love that you love your brother, right? When you do it to the least of these, that's how you know that it's really love. Uh, so I think we see that movement with most of the biblical languages expresses itself in this embodied allegiant way. Yeah, well, one of the things that we uh, talk about and teach is rebuild your gospel. So you deconstruct the gospel. And real, 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 real practically, uh, if you're leading a congregation or some sort of ministry or you're just talking to people in the neighborhood, essentially, fundamentally, you're going to change the ask. You know, what are you asking for? You change the ask. You change it from, you know, if you from the, the plan of salvation. Don't confuse the plan of salvation with the gospel. And so the, the plan of salvation is an extract out of the gospel that we, especially as Americans, have created in order to get decisions so we can count them, so we can feel better about ourselves. And so the issue then becomes, what do you change the ass to? So I'd, I'd love to hear more evangelism like this. If unless you are ready to repent of your sins and turn away from it and follow Jesus, don't pray the prayer, don't come forward, don't do any of that. I'll be happy to talk with you, happy to pray with you, happy to counsel with you, but if you're not ready to turn away from the former manner of life, if you're not there, you're not ready. And that will... Uh, you know, that might come out like uh, 40 acres of horseradish, but essentially it's the kind of cleansing that needs to take place. For, 40 acres of horseradish is your next book. Yeah. No, is that in the book? What you just said? Uh, it could be. Yeah. We're, still, we're still writing it. It reminds me of what our friend Keith Foster, he said that the most successful uh, armed service recruitment campaign in the UK ever was a poster that said 99% need not apply. And that actually by creating this high bar, people were like, no, I'm in, right? Like, I'm gonna prove myself. And that's part of the paradox is, is that in setting a low bar, we've actually stripped the church of its power. Uh, and that in setting a high bar, we, we, might, I, we might lose some people, we, all, we, all, we also might see the church return to its power. And there's a reason in John 6 where Jesus said, hey, if you wanna follow me, eat my flesh, drink my blood, worst possible time to say that from a church growth point of view but he sets the high bar and that's what he consistently was about and that's why there was power in his ministry so we'll take one more question sure i gave a very concise uh you know definition i think that rubric of someone who is allegiant and loyal to jesus that means all sorts of things right it means they're going to listen and respond they're going to seek to make disciples they're going to do all of these all of these things that are laid out in the scripture um so i was trying to create a broad category under which allegiance can flesh out in different ways You've been listening to the Disciple Makers podcast. The message you just heard was from the Bonhoeffer Project and their track called Going Upstream in Disciple Making. Download a free ebook primer for Bill Hull and Ben Sobel's book, The Discipleship Gospel, by going to discipleship.org gospel. That's discipleship.org gospel. 
You'll find dozens of other great discipleship resources at discipleship.org as well. May the Lord bless you as you seek to grow as a disciple maker.